0: Uh, in a moment today, we're going to be diving into Psalm 62. We're continuing in our mini-series looking at the Psalms. But before we do that, I would love to pray for us. And just to be, uh, just to be vulnerable with you for a moment, um, the last month, specifically the last week, uh, has been one of the most demanding seasons for me in ministry. Um, a lot of competing things uh, that have factored into this week when I would have loved to be just focused on God's Word. So even as I, I pray for us, Would you just in your own hearts, I'd be so grateful if you would pray for me uh, that I would honor God and honor you uh, as I seek to to teach today. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the chance to reflect on just from a few weeks ago, uh, the senior high winter retreat. And Lord, we want to commit our youth to you. We love them and we ask Lord that you would be the first and greatest affection in their hearts and lives. Uh, Lord, for all of us now, as we are turning to your word, we know we need this word. We know that you intend to speak truth and life into our circumstances, into our thoughts, into our perspectives. And so God, we invite you to do that now. We pray that we would be a people who sit in submission under the authority of your word uh, rather than critique over it. And Lord, would you help me uh, to honor your name and to serve this community that I love so much. Uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you by your spirit's power to work in and through us to glorify your name by making us more like Jesus as we take in this truth. And so we invite you to do that now. Amen. Uh, We're going to start off by reading from Psalm 62. This is a fairly uh, straightforward psalm in many ways. The first seven verses are the first section, which is some very personal reflections by David who wrote it. And then 8 through 12 is his exhortation to those who are reading and listening. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well, but Psalm 62. It says this, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will never be shaken. How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. They take delight in lies. With their mouths they bless, but in their hearts they curse. Yes, my soul, find rest in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath. The highborn are but a lie. If weighed in the balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. You reward everyone according to what they have done. Historically, the Puritans uh, and the Quakers, when they had the opportunity to interact uh, with a close friend or a loved one in their community, would ask a deep and meaningful question. Not kind of the typical just, how's it going? How are you? How's life? But they would really seek to touch the soul and they would say to their friends, to the person they were engaging with, how is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? And I'd love for us to sit with that question for a few moments this morning. How is it with your soul? Maybe if you were to take stock of what's going on, you'd start to pay attention to the emotions. What are the emotions residing at the core of your being? What are they communicating to you about how life is impacting you? What are the thoughts that are just dominating your mind? What are the responsibilities that demand your energy and maybe are wearing you down? What maybe are the communal or global realities that are clamoring noisily for your attention? Do you feel today that you're living from a place of rest and peace or exhaustion and worry? Are you tired? Are you worn out from uncertainty and drama and relational fractures and the latest wahoo on social media? Are you exhausted from struggling to protect and provide for the ones you love the most when so much feels out of your control? Maybe you're here today and you've heard lots of conversations as people excitedly acknowledge that restrictions are starting to scale back and that trip that was postponed can now happen or that youth sport that hasn't been playing can now be in place or those social gatherings or there's large holiday events. Uh, These can now happen. These are so good. Aren't you excited? But if you're honest, you're like, you know what? I'm exhausted. I don't feel like I have the get up and go to even invest myself in these really good things. There's fatigues, there's demands, there's stressors. Did I mention the concerns around a nuclear war because of what Russia is doing in Ukraine? How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? We're people who are tired of uncertainty, tired of division, tired of conflict, and tired of being tired. And so increasingly, you'll hear conversations where people are saying, man, you know what, I just, oh, I just, I just need a break. Or I can't catch a break. Or you know what, I think, I think I need to change my job. I just think I need a different vocation, a different career, because oh, this is just taking it out of me. Or you know what, a vacation. I just got to get to Cuba, and everything will be better. It would be awesome. Many people from our church family are in warm places like Cuba right now. Career change vacation, these things aren't bad. But how often have we found ourselves just, oh, we can't wait till I hit that vacation. I can't wait till I hit that long weekend. I can't wait till I have that week off. And then one or two days after returning back to work, we're like, man, I'm still as tired as ever. One or two days after returning to high school, I'm still as tired as ever. You see, we desperately need rest. And often When we are aware of that fatigue, we tend to go towards good things, but things that can't necessarily give us rest on a soul-deep level. I'm really tired. I'm going to go to my favorite restaurant, have my favorite dessert, maybe two servings of dessert, boom. I'm going to binge watch this show on Netflix. That'll give me rest. We start to look to things longing for rest, but find ourselves not met with deep, deep renewal. And so with March break on our doorstep and the opportunity where many of us can scale back to a degree where youth are out of school, reading week for some of our university students, today's invitation is to enter into the rest that God alone can give. To live from a posture of deep communion and renewal that he alone provides. This is a Psalm written by King David and he was someone who understood exhaustion. Uh, He lived with the demands of leading a kingdom, protecting that kingdom from enemy nations that might attack or raid, but also overcoming threats of internal foes, even assassins. And so he understands uncertainty and relational betrayal and despair and exhaustion. And so in the face of all these competing circumstances and realities that are wearing him down, what does he turn to? Verse one, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. The lens through which David sees the struggles and the threats and the crises of his life is that of sure, indestructible confidence in the character and the salvation of God alone. My title won't save me. My army won't save me. My popularity won't save me. God is my salvation. You might be sitting there thinking, okay, thanks, Luke. Really? Are you actually just gonna lob a Bible verse at us, be like, God's your salvation. Good things are happening. And like, we can all go to Swish LA now. Like, you don't know what's going on in my life, Luke. You don't know what's happening in my family. You don't know the health crises there or the relational fractures. You don't know how financially hard things are right now. Luke, you don't know how stressed I am for my sibling or my parent or my child. You're just going to lob that at me? Walk away? Is that what David does? Is he just all yippy skippy? It's going to be fine? No, look at verses three and four. David is brutally honest with himself and with God about the crisis in front of him. We know that David is king. We know that there's people vying for his position. And this is a situation where people would love to see him not just overthrown, but killed so that they can have power. And to his face, they are speaking and saying nice, good things. And behind his back, they are betraying him. This is David's reality. What does he say in verses three and four? How long will you assault me? Would all of you throw me down this leaning wall, this tottering fence? Surely they intend to topple me from my lofty place. That's the throne. They take delight in lies. With their mouths, they bless, but in their hearts, they curse. They curse. David is wounded. David is stressed. David has been betrayed and it is exhausting. It's exhausting along with all the demands that are on him for leading this nation. So David is going to do something crucial right here to speak truth into our lives as we navigate crises and challenges and our own circumstances. Because I can't speak for you, but I know when I am confronted with moments like this where someone is speaking badly about me or slandering me, I want to defend myself. I want to even attack. And maybe I'm like, oh, I'm going to try and be a good Christian that doesn't attack or defend myself. But man, I'm bitter. Man, I'm angry. Man, I would love to run into that person in the woods late one night, right? Like, like, I'm... So is David, Does he fostering a plan of attack or assault? Is he trying to defend himself? Is he being consumed by bitterness at what has happened to him? No, look at verses five through seven. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor, my reputation, depend on God. He is my mighty rock. He is my refuge. So pay attention to this because David goes from one side, at starting in verse one, saying, okay, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. All good. It's knowledge that he knows. He's looking forward to this future reality of being saved by God. He acknowledges how messed up his circumstances are and then he pivots and he's not just looking toward a future reality. He's speaking to his own heart. He's preaching to his own soul. He's commanding his affections to be grounded and reoriented in the hope that God alone can give. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. So he's preaching the truth to himself because David knows what it's like to be overwhelmed by despair. David knows what it's like to have his thoughts and his emotions paralyze him with angst and discouragement and fear. So he's preaching the truth to his heart. We know this. You look at at Psalm 19. David says, why are you downcast, my soul? He's preaching to himself. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so, David is telling us when we are in those circumstances where life is falling out from underneath us and we are devastated, and our thoughts want to take over and our emotions want to crush us, to stop and preach the truth to ourselves that our hope is in God. He's the unchanging one, He's our confidence, He's our salvation. All right? So, pause real quick some application in the middle of the sermon. How do we do this in real time? Because we're living on this side of the cross. We know that Jesus is our salvation, that He's given His life for our forgiveness and our redemption. We know that because of Jesus, we are accepted by God. And out of that joyful acceptance, we seek to live in obedience to God. But Satan loves to lie to us, and our flesh would love to still deceive us at times. So, how do we apply this in real time? How do we live immersed in the gospel? All right, a few quick examples, okay? And these are things from my own daily walk with God that I'm praying through often at the start of the day. In the face of fear, when we are fearful, what do we do? How do we respond? How do we preach the truth to ourselves? Romans 8, 15 through 17 clearly says, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. Satan you have no authority here to cause me to feel fear because you have no authority in my life because Jesus is king. I'm not a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. I've been adopted into his family and no one can take me out of that family. Condemnation. Condemnation. I'm feeling condemned by my sin or even I haven't sinned, but people around me are condemning me or trying to manipulate me by, by saying harsh or accusing things. Again, Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are a people who have been made whole and holy through the blood of Christ. Condemnation has no authority in our hearts and our lives. Continuing, what about despair? When we just wanna give up, what do we do in the reality of despair? Psalm 33, we wait and hope for the Lord. He's our refuge and our shield. In him, our hearts rejoice for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love rest on us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. I do not need to give way to despair. What about temptation? Those areas of vulnerability or weakness, that sin that we know so often seems to consume us. Friends, this is, this is one actually I pray pretty much every single day. This is from Roman six, Romans 6, verse 14. Sin is not your master. Sin has no hold on you. You are not under the law. You are under God's grace. So sin has no authority in my life or to dictate my thoughts or affections or actions today. And what about those moments where we say, man, have I changed? Can I change? Is God doing a good, renewing work in me? 2 Corinthians 5. I am a brand new creation in Christ. For if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. So this is what it means. This is what David is inviting us to when he starts preaching to himself is saying, hey, listen, you're gonna go back to whatever it is tomorrow, work, not school, hey, March break. But in a week, March break, you're gonna go back to these realities where there might be challenging people or stressful circumstances or difficult realities. And you're gonna be tempted to be overwhelmed by those things and live from a place of fear or despair or angst or discouragement because of those realities in your life. And listen, you don't have to. In fact, you can live in freedom and strength because the spirit of God and the word of God are actively being lived out and applied in your life. But you're going to have to own that and preach the truth of the gospel to your own heart. This is what it is to say, find rest my soul in God alone. My hope comes from him. David has experienced the beautiful reality of this union with God, that in these moments where he's weak and he's wounded and he's hurting, he can come before God and God, again, is his strength, his salvation, his refuge, his hope. And so in verse eight through 12, he now turns his attention to us in a way, to those who are gonna read this. He's wanting to preach life to us and invite us to become a people who enjoy that same union with God that he himself has enjoyed. Many of us in this room could say that we have a best friend or maybe a few best friends, people that when we're with, we can just let our hair down, be ourselves, we feel understood, we feel loved, we feel respected and cared for. And so often those friends are the people that we share our hearts with, that we're willing to talk about the good, the bad and the ugly with them. You know what I'm saying. And how good is it? How many times have you experienced connecting with that best friend, sharing your heart with them, Them sharing their heart with you and you're able to pray with and for one another. And you walk away from that time feeling as if everything weighty on your heart or your shoulders has been lifted because of this gift of rich relational union with this dear friend who has shouldered those struggles alongside of you and walking with you in that. Have you experienced that? Have you felt that relational gift? This is what David now wants us to experience in God. In God, note what verse eight says. He writes this, trust in him, that's God at all times, you people, pour out your hearts to him for God is our refuge. So he's saying, you know, you've had those conversations with a dear friend, a trusted friend who you love and it's such a gift because of their encouragement and their understanding and their support. This is what I want you to have in God and it's utterly available to you. So come to God, pour out your hearts to him, invite him into the good and the bad And the ugly, because he is that perfect friend, that perfect person who journeys with you, who loves you, who wants to walk with you in that struggle. When was the last time you actively poured out your heart to God? Many of us, we tend to reach the heart pouring out moment when life like blows up. We find out about that family member's cancer diagnosis or close friend loses their job, or suddenly we start praying. We start praying. There's like, pray for this meal and pray for safety when we travel prayers. And then there's like, Lord, we need you. Prayers. But what David is saying here is, it, don't wait till life blows up in your face to pour out your heart to God. Rather, embrace a rhythm of living from deep dependence on God actually to make pouring out your heart to God part of every single day, inviting him into the good, the bad, and the ugly of life to journey with you, to carry these with you, to let him be the king that he has promised to be. David does something interesting here though in verses nine and 10, because he kind of switches tacks real quick and says, listen, I want to invite you into the beautiful reality of union with God that leads to real renewal and soul rest. I want you to have that. But here's the deal. If we're not careful, we can be distracted by secondary things. We can actually put our hope and our confidence and our trust in things that will not save us, but we act like they will. And so he actually points to three things, giving them as like a warning, saying, hey, careful, maybe assess your own heart and mind. Are you putting your hope and confidence in these things that will not save? The first thing he highlights are our pursuit of social standing. He writes, the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. He says, it doesn't matter if you're a pauper or a prince, you're equal in God's eyes. Your social standing will not save you. It isn't cause for giving you greater hope. And so be careful because we can chase after popularity as if it's actually gonna give us hope. It's actually gonna save us when it won't. And he knows us, he's the top dog, he's the king. Friends, in in real time today, we can do this in our own lives and even in our own churches. We can vie for social supremacy. Our youth and young adults know this, that everyone is constantly trying to be like, look where I went on my vacation. This is what's going to be March break. Look, I'm in Florida. I'm in Cuba. I'm in England. I'm in Iceland. Why'd you go there? I don't know. But everyone's saying like, look where I went. Look at these great photos. Look at all the likes I'm getting. Look at all the followers I'm getting. I'm continuously ascending the ranks and being more and more popular. We know this. People put their hope in that. And if someone loses a follower, gets few likes, it's devastating. Why? Because we put our hope in our social standing. I'm I'm a dad with a four-month-old, and already it's amazing to realize that that there's this weird kind of like competition that can go between parents. Like, is your kid rolling over? My kid's rolling over. My kid just said deoxyribonucleic acid. I'm like, well, he's four months. So, right? So we have these like competing (laughs) forces where people are trying to say, look, look what we're doing. We're the best. Look what we've accomplished. Look at what our family, dot, dot, dot. And it's exhausting. And what actually happens is it kills real community and real unity because what we start to do is we are continuously thrusting in people's faces our best and brightest moments and realities and hiding our weaknesses and our failures and our burdens. And so we become crushed by realities that we are terrified to show to one another rather than recognizing that if our hope is in God, if he has saved us, if we are living in a community of people that are bought with his blood, we can be real. We can let down our guard. We can be honest about the messy spaces in our lives. David gets that. So he says, listen, don't put your hope in popularity. That's not gonna save you. It's not gonna sustain your hope. Second thing David highlights, he he actually points to uh, this reality of taking advantage of others. He says, do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Now, let's be real. There's probably very few of us, hopefully none of us in here, who are actively involved in extortion uh, or stealing other people's goods. Uh, Maybe you sold toilet paper for a hundred bucks a roll at the start of the pandemic. We can talk about that after, all right? But I'm guessing we're not a crowd that's big into extortion and stealing other things. But are there ways in which we do still use people for our own ends? Just like straight up confession, I 100% am guilty of seeing somebody with a need, seeing somebody else that I respect, giving myself to meet that person who has a need, not because I love them or care about them or want to help them, but because after this person I respect is like, boy, Luke Crawford. Have you been there? Are there ways in which we perform and do even good things for the sake of padding our own reputation and exalting ourselves in the eyes of others not because we care to serve or love or glorify God but to boost up our own image? It's crazy to think about the reality that when it comes to global religions Christianity is really the only one that is like do your good things in secret. Don't let people know, why? Because it's so easy for us to do the right thing for the wrong reason. So are we a people who use one another in order to elevate ourselves? The last thing that David points to is the reality of financial wealth. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Now I wanna be careful here because the reality is if we live in North America, in the West, on a, with a global perspective, we're wealthy, okay? We're rich. We might not be, see ourselves as wealthy within North America, but the reality is we're a rich and wealthy people, okay? That is not evil, all right? And, and too often when finances are talked about, people can be like, oh no, I've got two cars and a cottage. It's not wrong to be financially successful. In fact, it's not uncommon to see examples in scripture of God blessing people with the ability to actually make good money so that they can be generous so that they can be God's hands and feet in the world. And I just listed off a ton of names of people who were so generous with their time and their energy and their resources to serve our youth. Friends, that is beautiful. That is beautiful. Let's continue to be a people who love to respond to God's generosity in our lives by being generous, all right? So this is not, I'm not shaming anybody here for being financially successful. That's a really good thing. What David's warning is to say, how often are we deeply aware of what our bank statement says more than what God's word says about who we are and what our hope is. How often can we be a people who find ourselves falling asleep at night with a false sense of peace because we are financially stable, regardless of the condition of our souls? And so he's saying, listen, don't put your hope in money. Money cannot save. And if we've seen anything from the pandemic or even more recent activities, the stock market, gas prices, jobs, so many things can be in flux just like that. So don't put your hope in that. Don't put your confidence in those things. But David doesn't just leave us hanging. He doesn't just say, okay, don't do these things. See you next week. He actually concludes this psalm by now inviting us to sink our teeth into these good and beautiful and awesome realities of the character of God that he makes richly available to us, his people. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is what David is pointing us to, to say to overcome these temptations of self-promotion or extortion or affluence. Here's what we set our hope and our focus on. Verse 11, one thing God has spoken... Two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love. You reward everyone according to what they have done. Now, it's interesting here, right? Because we've already talked about how earlier David could have tried to attack the people who were assaulting him. He could have been consumed by bitterness, but he's not. He actually comes and he's focusing in on the salvation and hope he has in God. And some translations will even say, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. So David has come before God in silence. He's not lashing out at the people that are hurting him. He's acknowledged what's evil, but then he's waiting and he's present to God. He's listening to God. What does God say? God says, I am infinitely powerful and I am unfailing in love. What a gift to come before God with all the realities in our lives and know that he invites us to remember again that he is almighty and he is all loving. This is how God loves to lead us into his rest. Here's the thing, though. You might be saying, you know what, Luke? I, I see that, but I have prayed for God to show up in power, and he hasn't. What do I do with that? What do I do about the people who are sick, that I've prayed for their healing, and they die? Is God really powerful? Can I trust him in this? As a church, and maybe even as I was inviting you and asking that question, how is it with your soul? Names came to mind. Grace Behringer, Keith Wood, Don Dykstra. If you're just visiting today, these are people that we love. They have been a beautiful part of this church family for years. And in the last few weeks, they have gone to be with the Lord. Uh, Two of them, we hosted funerals here at the church just this last week. Some of us were praying, that God's power would be exercised in their lives and that he would heal them. And God didn't. Is God too weak? Can we trust in God? Can we actually rest in God if we know we're gonna pray for someone to be healed and then he lets them die? I wanna highlight Isaiah 40, 10 and 11 and trying to answer that with you because Isaiah is capturing this dynamic of both God's power and his love and how it is expressed in our lives in real time. Isaiah 40, verses 10 and 11. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. But now look at at what he says about God's unfailing love. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Sometimes God shows up in power and deliverance and totally transforms a situation and it's awesome. Sometimes God gently reaches out and takes one of his children and gently draws them to his heart and that's his unfailing love. And so as we grieve and acknowledge those we love who we have lost, realize that what God has done here is demonstrating his unfailing love. They have seen their hope Their salvation is now sight. God has gently, tenderly drawn them to himself. Recognize that because when we pray, we often pray asking God to act in power and know that sometimes he often acts in love. But both are good and beautiful, ultimately, if our salvation and our hope are in him. So as we close, I wanna return to that first question. How is it with your soul? How is it with your soul? You may have heard of the hymn writer Horatio G. Spafford. In 1871, he was living in Chicago. He was a very, very successful lawyer, and he had heavily invested in the real estate market in that city. And only a few months later, if you know history, 1871, the great Chicago fire took place huge, like tons and tons of area in the city, multiple buildings were destroyed by this fire and he was basically bankrupt overnight. To make matters worse, he had five children, four daughters and one son and his son was killed in the fire. His four-year-old son died in the fire. And so over the next two years, Spafford was working to somehow get his business back together to grieve the loss of his son to try and find his feet again And his personal friend, Dwight L. Moody, invited him and his wife and their four daughters to join him in England for an evangelism trip that they were doing. And so Spafford sent his wife and his daughters ahead of him sailing across the Atlantic and he was gonna follow a few weeks after. Sadly, in the midst of fog, there was a brutal boating collision. The ship that his wife and daughters were on sank almost instantly. And he just received a telegram from his wife a few days later that said two words, saved, alone. So Spafford's four daughters drowned in this shipping accident. A few weeks later, as he was sailing across the Atlantic, he asked that the captain tell him when he was near the spot where the ship with his daughters had gone down. And so he went up, he stood at the railing, and as he watched the waves, he wrote, When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot. Thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should triumph, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith, my hope, shall be sight. He'll be able to embrace his daughters, his son. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. Christ shall descend. And even then, it is well with my soul. How can you say that? How can you say that? How can you lose your business, have your son killed in a fire, have your four daughters drown, and literally have everyone in your family taken away from you but your wife? How can you say that? Spafford was a man that, regardless what happened financially, that even in the brutal loss of loved ones, his hope and his salvation was found in God. And so whatever happened circumstantially, as painful as that would be, he was anchored to the rock that is God his refuge. That's how Spafford can say that. That's what this psalm is inviting you and I into. An unchanging, indestructible reality that we, in the chaos of life, in the exhaustion of wild circumstances, in the crushing weight of things that feel too heavy to bear, can be a people who say, it is well with my soul. Jesus is my hope, he's my savior, he's my king. And so I want to invite you into the rest of God. I wanna invite us as a people to say, yes, this is who we are, this is where we belong, this is the rest that our souls have been crying out for. And that starts with us stopping and saying, like verse one, My soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. Is Jesus Christ your salvation? Is your job saving you right now? Is your significant other saving you right now? Is your social media presence saving you right now? These things can't save. But like Spafford, we are invited to embrace the gift of God's forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ, and to say, Lord, be the king of everything I am. I submit all that I am to you. I am living with my hope and salvation in you. And that's a choice you can make right here, right now. Is Jesus your king? With that, many of you have said, yes, I want Jesus to be my king. I made that decision five, 10, 25, 50 years ago? Are you leaning into the gift that God gives you as a result of that decision? Because we know that God gives his spirit to fill us, fuel us, strengthen us, to give us his perspective in the world, to make us attune to what he's doing, that it's the spirit of God that intercedes for us. When we don't have words to even pray, we are so beat up and broken down. It actually says in 2 Timothy 1, God did not give us a spirit that makes us afraid. He gave us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. So we can be a people who live free from fear in God's power and God's love and with a sound disciplined mind, regardless of what's going on, not because we're superheroes, but because the spirit of God lives in us. Are you saying yes to God's invitation to walk in step with the spirit of God every day? Is he your strength? Secondly, as we saw in verse eight of this text, it says, pour out your hearts to God for God is our refuge. There's this invitation to be totally honest with God about our pain, totally honest about our circumstances which we can't control, totally honest about these burdens that are crushing us. But here's the deal. God gives us community so that we can not only pour out our hearts to him, but we can pour out our hearts to one another. So who is the person or the people in your community that love you and love God, who are trustworthy, that you can say, would you please journey with us in this? We can't bear this alone. I can't bear this alone. I need your help. I need your love. I need your support. Actually, Galatians 6 talks about how the law of God's love is is, is fulfilled in our hearts when we carry each other's burdens. It says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. How do we enter into God's rest? Lean into the people he's put in your life to journey with you, to lift you up. Lastly, let's be a people who step into and rest in God's power and God's love. Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing Love. I I love this. That we're called to be a people who can readily step into every single day, say, I can walk today in the power that God gives and I can rest in his unfailing love. We've been going through John recently, and John is known for having these different I am statements. And there's this one I am statement that we often miss that's in Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. But it's Jesus revealing God's heart towards us so that in these moments of exhaustion and burden, we can find our rest in him. It's famous, Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So how do we enter into the rest of God? How do we save his power and his unfailing love? We worship. We worship. We worship not just by singing and anchoring our hearts and our minds in lyrics that remind us of the truth of the gospel. We worship by stepping into and feasting on the good gifts that God has put in our lives that act as signposts pointing us back to him. What are those realities that when you do them, they just make you come alive? Is it mountain biking? Is it downhill skiing? Is it reading a great novel? Is it a heart-to-heart conversation with a close friend? Is it traveling internationally? Is it sculpting? Is it painting? What are those good things that God in making you in his image has put into your life that as you do them, they are fulfilling and renewing and joyful and they serve as signposts to say, oh, this is such a good gift and it only increases my affection for the giver. What are those places where you can actually cease striving and know that he's God? Full disclosure, Blue Mountain, Scandinave Spa, Hot Pool, Cold Pool, Sauna. That's my jam, right? Just to stop, to leave your phone in the locker, to be still, to rest, and just to invite God to fill your heart and your mind with his truth and his love and his grace. How can we feast on the goodness of God in our weekly and daily rhythms so that we might live from a place of deep communion with and enjoying him? I gotta say this. I won't say his name, but a person here who told me one time, he said, my sanctuary is in a duck blind waiting at like 3.30 in the morning, calling in ducks, sniping them out of the air. That's my sanctuary. That's where God meets me. That's beautiful. Where is that space where you can feast on the goodness of God and let that gift draw your heart in a new way back to his love and his power? Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word and that you, in a season where we have been through a lot, where individuals in this community have been through so many things, many of which I don't even know, but you know. Thank you that you invite us to find our rest and our hope and our refuge in you. God, we see again and again in your word and in Christian historical figures since then, this profound, almost incomprehensible ability to be a people of hope and surety and peace and confidence despite devastating circumstances because their hope is in you. And so today, Father, would you help us now to rest in the reality of what you've done for us on the cross, to rest in the strength of your spirit to us, to rest in the gift of community, and to rest in the joy of the good life-giving realities that you have filled our lives with so that we might delight in and savor you more. Lord, I pray that today you would renew the hearts of your people, that you would strengthen them, that you would reestablish their hope in you, and that you indeed would be our salvation. Amen.